With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Moments with Maya. Conversations of love and laughter. The show where each week, your host, healthcare administrator and certified humour professional, Maya Aziz, invites someone who is out there pushing the positive to join her for a heartfelt and often hilarious coffee conversation about love, laughter, leadership and, well, life. Love and laughter might not cure what ails you, but they sure go a long way to getting you through those tough life moments. So sit back, pour yourself a cup, and get ready to laugh and learn today on Morning Moments. Look for the good. It is all around. It sure is. Good morning, Maya, coming live from Montreal this November 20th, 2016. November 20th, it is National Peanut Butter Fudge Day. Oh, that works for me, and that could work for me just about every day. It also happens to be National Absurdity Day, believe it or not, uh, which I feel like must come up a little bit more often than once a year for me. But that is another story. Today, we are going to be talking about humanity in healthcare. In her TED Talk on narrative humility, Dr. Sayantani Dasgupta says, Long before doctors had anything of interest in their black bags, no MRIs, no lab tests, no fancy all-body CAT scans, what they had was the ability to show up. What they had was the ability to listen and bear witness to someone's life, death, illness, suffering, and everything else that comes in between. These days, with advances in science and technology ramping up our ability to cure, somehow, sometimes, it feels as though perhaps we've forgotten how to heal. Have we been so shaped by external pressures of healthcare efficiency and complex medical care that the art of connecting with the human at the center of that care has slipped by the wayside? According to Stats Canada, healthcare providers comprise about 6% of the Canadian workforce. And 45% of these workers report that most days on the job were quite or extremely stressful, with the rate going up to 65% for some of those healthcare professions. The impact of this on them is as individuals, anyways, is obvious burnout, exhaustion, health issues, risk of errors. But I can't help also wondering about what is the impact on their interactions and connections within the healthcare setting? How can we treat our patients and colleagues with empathy and humanity under these conditions? And what's the consequence of all of this? How can we expect those needing such care themselves to be able to truly care for others? 
And how can we renew the humanity in healthcare? Well, thankfully, I have someone with me today who's going to help me hash this all out. Duana Covey, Director of the Center for Learning and Professional Development Operations at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, is a graduate of the Institute for Professional Empowerment Coaching, who, through her private coaching practice, New Season Coaching, supports individuals and groups on their paths to positive communication strategies, healthy work environments, and intentional career choices. She is a certified Myers-Briggs facilitator, certified laughter leader, and Reiki master, who is a member of the Coaching Center of Vermont, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, and the International Coach Federation. Today, Duena, whose enthusiasm, authenticity, and humor are regularly featured in her Bridge Weekly column, Dose of Duena, is here with me to share a conversation on the whys and hows of prioritizing the human factor in healthcare. Duena, welcome to the show. Good morning, Maya. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm so glad. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I can't believe it's National Peanut Butter Day, uh, Peanut Butter Fudge Day, because I have the nickname of Fudge Pant, because during the holidays, I make a ton of peanut butter fudge. Ah! Just throwing that out there. (laughs) That's so perfect, and I did not know that about you. We might have to talk after the show. (laughs) There you go. So, Dwayne, I'm really happy that you could join me uh, this morning to have this conversation. As the listeners know, I I myself work in the healthcare system as well as you do. Um, And this topic of sort of the human factor and humanity in healthcare um, has been more and more spoken about um, as we sort of advance technologically and face ourselves, whether you're in the public or private system, I think this this whole reality of budget cuts and efficiency is impacting everybody in healthcare. And so it's such an important thing to sort of balance those two aspects. But I want to start by kind of clarifying um, some definitions for our, our listeners. And I, I'm curious how you yourself would define this idea of humanity in healthcare. So for me, I think it's really the ability to care for yourself. First and foremost before we care for others and then with the others it's a whole circle of our community inclusive of our colleagues our patients and their families having that deep empathy for all of those involved within the treatment plan and external to that as well and using deep listening skills and seeking to understand before being understood in the true word of Stephen Covey Um, you know when you fly in a plane they tell you about putting your oxygen mask on before helping the person next to you and I see that at the core of healthcare, and I think when you're talking about the use of technology and new implementation of systems, we have gotten away from that. And self-care, typically for providers and physicians specifically, they typically don't see that they need care or ask for care, so they're depleted before they even realize it. That's so true, and <laughs> I'm almost laughing over here because I mean, how many times have I seen? colleagues who are so concerned uh, with the care of their patients and so terrible about accessing the care that they need for themselves. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not a joke that people say that, you know, doctors make the absolute worst patients. And it's not just doctors, I would say probably all of us in the healthcare field uh, are not so good about doing that for ourselves. 
But what's the consequence of that for, for these healthcare professionals that you're talking about who have perhaps lost that or forgotten that? What's the consequence to them? Well, I think ultimately the consequence can be burnout, you know, which decreases quality of care and patient satisfaction. And you, you talked about it a bit earlier, increases medical area, um, error, the malpractice risk, um, the use of drug and alcohol, suicide. It's just a core, and this is the piece to the provider themselves outside of what can take place right with the patient. I mean, the medical error certainly is with the patient. And according to um, psychologist Christina Maslock, she talks about burning burnout when a physician really feels emotionally exhausted. They've depersonalized, which is a lot of what we're talking about here today. They feel ineffective and may be so. Um, they lose their spirit. And sometimes it's really that disconnect of why did I go into medicine in the first place? Because... Mm. You know, people who are later in career right now in healthcare certainly have different training than what is taking place in the workplace today. That's interesting. Can you tell me more about that? Like, how is it? How has it changed in terms of the training that they're receiving? So we think even in you know, even if you went to medical school in the '80s, the medical record was not what it is today. So when I first started as a uh, an appointment secretary in the mid '80s, we did all recording by pencil, and it was actually pencil, so you could erase, right, pencil and paper. And today <laughs> everything's technology, right? So we have a, you know, you may have an iPhone in your pocket or you may have a laptop or a tablet that you're carrying around, and that impacts that conversation that you have on a day-to-day basis with the patient. So there's a piece of equipment between you, and we hear from patients that we're missing that piece of extending a hand and introducing yourself or consistent eye contact or the time and energy to sit in a, in, a, in a deep conversation and talk about a care plan together because technology can be there. And that's outside of the technology within a care room. Right? As we have more machines and more testing, more ability to treat in better ways, it comes with a different kind of learning, more on the technology side, which takes us away sometimes from that humanistic side. That's really interesting. You know, I'm listening to you and I'm sort of having flashbacks and I've, I've had that experience myself where, um, and, and part of me, I have to admit, uh, thought in the moment, oh, that's really cool. He's got all that info on his iPhone. <laughs> um, exactly. But the, <laughs> you know, what, what, what great access to information. But the other part of it was, um, you know, the doctor never looked at me. Um, there was no eye right. contact with all, you know, I'm sure he would not recognize me, uh, you know, anywhere um, because of that. And, and for sure, you know, now in treatment rooms, there are computers in every treatment room and it's all, they're looking at the screen, kind of talking to you off uh, at the side. And I don't want to minimize the value of that technology because I think uh, it has brought um, uh, a really productive and helpful tool, but, like with anything, there's a flip side, right? Oh, oh sorry, I Maya, you? I lost you for oh, a minute no. there. Are you there? It's all, sorry. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> yes. Speaking of, speaking of technology, can... cutting human I communication. <laughs> the iPhone, gotta love it. It's, it's thinking about how do we... <laughs> How do we find that fine line, right? How do we find that place of, you know, knowing that healthcare providers don't get up in the morning and say, I'm planning to disconnect from my patients today. <laughs> they get up in the morning and they come to work, right, and look at their list of the patient care load that they have and then trying to get through that and also trying yeah. to give their patients that best care. 
you know, and I think that's really where that exhaustion piece comes in of that continual use of energy and not having time or taking time, honestly, during the day to refuel themselves. Yeah, and, you know, when you say it that way and regularly, I mean, I really feel for them because, like you said before, they went into this field because they care about people and because they wanted to help people. And now they find themselves in this situation. And I sometimes hear about how many patients doctors are seeing in a day. And I think that is insanity. And as you say, they're getting up in the morning and coming in thinking, okay, I've got a, how am I going to get through and make sure that I see all of these people and give them what they need in terms of treatment. Um, I, I have to wonder how that impacts also on motivation and you know last week we did a show on finding your sense of meaning at work which is what motivates all of us as we go to work it's got to have an impact don't you think oh absolutely so probably know from employee engagement you know the people who are highly engaged that they find that connection to not only their work but they feel valued in terms of the organization as itself right so we look at sustainable engagement we know that that means that I'm engaged, I'm enabled. It means that I have the resources and I'm able to be productive and perform at the level that I I want to and that I'm energized, that I have that physical ability and emotional well-being and support at work. And if I feel that disconnect, that is going to completely roll over into that patient's room, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of maybe not feeling like you have the resources or when you talked about budget cuts, not feeling that I have the, the tools to do my job. Um, and we think of that in terms of a patient's engagement as well, right? It's a two-way street, really. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that because we've you know, spoken a little bit about the impact of all of this on the healthcare providers. But as you say, it rolls over into what goes on in the patient room and the, the patient's or the family's experience of um, the healthcare system. What is the consequence for them? I mean, what... What impact does it have on the patient's experience when the doctor is, you know, slightly disconnected and rushed and the the human piece is perhaps missing? Right. So when you talked about earlier about the error piece, right, about being being in a hurry, not being intentional. So when a healthcare provider is not intentional about being in that moment and fully listening, the patient and family can certainly suffer. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the um, Josie King story. No, she go ahead, an, Tommy. Um, no. So she was an 18-month-old um, a toddler who had gone into a hospital for health care for a, a burn, a skin burn on her foot. And what ultimately happened is at a time when the family was, you know, beginning to celebrate that she would be released from the hospital, the mom noticed, um, Sorrel King noticed that her daughter was starting to, to change and kept bringing it to the health care providers and at that point was not listened to. And ultimately, um, Josie passed away as a result of that medical error. And when thinking about that, and, you know, this was a mom that was deeply engaged in the care of her child and was there and was trying to be that, um, a member of that care team. And so when we think about when we go into a patient's room, there's so many other pieces to be listening to, right, as well as the family, the patient themselves, um, the extended family, and I know it's a lot to listen to when we think about today about the whole shared decision-making process and how that has become a national initiative and getting people to take the time and use certain tools in guiding decisions which can make it 
I don't know if it's really easier, but it can give um, the whole team the avenue to be able to have a document to guide them and then really document what it is that everybody wants prior to putting that care plan in place. Including the patient and their family. Absolutely. Right. And that's the great thing about their shared decision making. You know, it absolutely takes more time to do that. And when you were talking earlier about budget cuts and, you know, also access is an issue. So as we reduce budgets, how do we then also provide the amount of staff that we need to provide the right amount of care? And then how do we have that time to do shared decision-making well so that that patient and family are really being listened to and, giving, and being given all of the options and then making the right choice for them? You know, you touched on earlier that, you know, the, a, a provider may have in their hand easy access, right, to, to tons of resources. That's the same for patients. So many patients today are Googling, right, or using another search engine, to, to self-diagnose what's, you know, what they think is wrong with them. So they're also coming in to their visits with much more information than they would have had 10 years ago, which can be good, but it can also be very overwhelming. Exactly. There's pros and cons to that. But you're right. It's very, very different now. I mean, I think, um, you know, patients coming in are coming in, you're right, very, very differently than they, than they did before because of all of the information that they have direct access to even before seeing the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. And as you said, there's, there's sort of good things and bad things to that. And probably that contributes to needing even more time to sort of clarify misconceptions and information that the patient thinks is correct or, or is correct. Right. You, you talked a lot about um, listening and the importance of listening. I mean, what does that even mean? How, how do we listen well? So I like to use the term third-level listening. So this is the place where we are totally in sync with the person that's in that room with us, that there, there aren't any barriers. We're not on the, the computer. Our mind isn't drifting out the window. We're not thinking of the what next the next patient, the next staff member, mm-hmm. my kids are at home or I need to pick them up or my own ill family member, right? That so we are being intentful and we are mindful of being in that moment so that we can have empathy and be very open to listening to the patient's needs so that we can answer questions appropriately and then feed information out as needed. Um, you know, and again, I come back to that piece of shared decision-making, but I also think it's trust-building. So as we build relationship with our patients, it's really that trust piece. piece. And it does go, again, back goes both ways for the patient to be able to trust what the physician or the mm-hmm. other provider is saying, as well as the provider to be sure that when they ask a patient, did you take your medicine this morning, that the patient's answer is going to be yes. <laughs> right, so <laughs> yeah. Trust in that plan. Exactly. Or if the, or if the patient's answer is no, that the provider is then able to listen to the why and the story behind Absolutely. that to really understand right. what's going on. Um, you know, as I was preparing for the show, I was, uh, you know, there's a, this whole field of narrative medicine, which is so yeah. interesting to me um, in terms of being able to pull and listen genuinely to patients' stories. But I think you made a, a really good point earlier that it's not easy. It's not easy to make the time to do that. It's not easy to actually do that. 
So, so then I think about, you know, how our health centers and healthcare systems are set up. And I'm wondering, how do we make that shift? I mean, given these pressures to see a million patients in one day, we, you've convinced me. You've convinced me in the value of taking the time to truly listen and, and do this process with patients. But I'm in my brain, I'm trying to put those two together. And, uh, you know, the fact that today is National Absurdity Day is perhaps fitting because I, <laughs> right. you know, how do those go to, like, what can we concretely do to make that shift? Right. So I think it's, it's two-sided again, right? It's about the organization, but it's also about the people within that organization. So we as individuals have our own accountability for our, for our own sense of stress and how we, how we manage that stress of our day-to-day, you know, so whether we're getting the right amount of sleep, so sleep deprivation is, can be a major issue, right? It can have the same effects as somebody who has, who's intoxicated. So making sure that we're getting that seven to eight hours sleep, not everybody needs that, but that's pretty much the general tone. You know, um, being in touch with our emotional self, um, emotional intelligence and doing some reading up on, you know, Goldman's work and what we can do. And those have, you know, we're talking about self-awareness, self-regulation of our own emotions and motivation, which you were talking about early, right? Are we, intrinsic, are we intrinsically motivated? And if so, what, what motivates us and what externally motivates us and being aware of that so that we can help our leaders understand that about ourselves. And then the empathetic piece, right? Really putting ourselves in that situation of those around us, including our colleagues who we may be having conflict with, what place mm-hmm. are they coming from? And then our social skills, because honestly, a lot of um, the work that I do does revolve around this whole emotional intelligence communication piece. And sometimes it's simply pieces of miscommunication rather than another type of major issue. Um, so, and it's interesting because you've talked about narrative medicine, and I, you know, stumbled across that as well as I was preparing more for this and thinking about the narrative medicine used from the side of the practitioner and using that journaling piece in their own private venting, so to speak, about experiences that have happened to them in their training and practice. So, you know, these pieces are all about at that individual level, but then certainly at the organizational level, it's being aware of how we roll out new technology and when we roll out the new technology and how much change is going on at, at one time and then how important it is to let our employees know how we see them in that bigger picture of that um, overall organizational structure and how they can, how we value them individually. You know, and talking about the right pay and the work hours for, you know, even for physicians and the, the different fields of practice, their work hours are all over the board, right? It's not the same. But how do we flex and bend as an organization to meet some of those needs because people are a whole person. They're not simply that person that comes to work. They have a life outside of that work environment. And how do we support that as well? It really is all so connected. Uh, you know, it's like you're describing if we can make a workplace culture that is human, then mm-hmm. we allow our staff to function in a way that is human and then to treat patients um, as the, the humans that they are. And it has to kind of all happen. Um, otherwise, it won't. Correct. 
correct, you know, when thinking about the, the culture of an organization, right, what is that culture and how am I as an employee connected to that culture and is it the right culture for me? So, mm-hmm. you know, I happen to work in academic medicine, but there's certainly other types of medicine, right? There's a community-based or the, the clinic-based. There's private practice. There's many alternatives for people. And I think when we talk about, like, the the generation coming into medicine, like taking some time to support them and thinking about where do they really want to be? What kind of practice do they want to be in so that they can be more aligned with that and not battling a different value system at the onset? That's a really interesting point, actually, because you're right that some of these these cultures vary quite a bit. And I'm also sort of in more an academic medicine kind of a a setting. Um, And that's that tends to be where I, I don't know if it's the same in the U.S., but that tends to be where the first jobs are. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so it's interesting that, and I think, you know, you learn through experience and you even learn cultural values through experience. So if that's (laughs) sort of where you're getting your training, and I think about, you know, every single day, how these little pods, pods of medical students go from room to room and it's this really mm-hmm. not terribly humane experience and exchange with the patient as these, you know, 10 students are there learning while this poor patient is, is trying to receive the treatment that they need to receive. But that's how, um, how these professionals are kind of being raised and trained. It's almost like they not need to unlearn that, but they need to be sure to learn something else on top of that as well. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about that the the broader cultural competence piece, right, of understanding not only the culture of an organization, how you're talking about the culture of training almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And how do we how do we have that that meet and marry that hum, humanistic piece of everybody's needs, right? Maybe thinking about that a little bit more. I think that would be an interesting research paper in itself. <laughs> thinking about the you know um cultural competence in itself as an organization and being aware of not only our interactions, but the diverse values and behaviors of social needs and cultural needs of not only the patient, right? I mean, the patient is the core of what we're doing, yet also of our colleagues and our leaders and our peers, right? I mean, because it's it's pretty diverse, even in the areas where Vermont, a lot of us look the same, but there are various cultural cultures happening mm-hmm. within our family structure, within our values and beliefs, and those come to work with us every day. For sure. Um, that, that makes me think again about the importance of um, taking the time to listen to people's individual stories, whether we're talking about patients or colleagues, because exactly what you're saying, people come from very different backgrounds and cultures and with that comes their values and how they put meaning on a situation. Um, and if we forget that we are losing a ginormously important uh, piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And, you know, and I think as a, you know, so a year ago tomorrow, Tomorrow's the anniversary of my husband's heart attack, which he mm. survived, by the way. <laughs> and what was interesting is that I had previously been an EMT for a few years. I don't think it was quite a decade. But in that moment when he was on the floor in front of me unconscious, it's like I lost all 
um, memory of what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I knew to call 911, but the rest of it kind of fell out of my head because my emotions took over. Right? I was in that place of just fear. And so for me as the family members and um, neighbors and uh, ambulance crew came and kind of took over for me, it was so great to have other people here with me listening because in that moment I couldn't listen for myself. And then mm. as we then went to the, the hospital in you know, and I'm familiar with a hospital, but I'm certainly not a clinician in being in that emergency room with 15, you know, providers at different levels, you know, taking care of my husband and, and coming to communicate with me and asking me questions and, and guiding me and then having somebody there to say, you know, do you understand what we're saying? Um, I found that to be very beneficial. So even when we are the patient or the family of the patient and we have some sort of medical understanding or medical training, it doesn't mean that we're always hearing what's being said because our emotions are just running so high. Of course, of course. Um, And what a vivid example. And uh, I'm so grateful to hear that he came out okay. Um, But it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. And and it, you bring up a really good point because, you know, in that moment you're describing yourself freezing. But I think there's also, um, you know, we talk about, you were speaking earlier about clinicians becoming a little bit detached, becoming a little bit disconnected. Mm-hmm. To some degree, don't they have to do that? I mean, we were talking about mm-hmm. connecting with the patient because you want to be human, you want to have that connection. But you also need to have boundaries and be able to be objective and do your job, right? Oh, that's such a great point. So I think about going back to my counseling training days, right, when we were taught about about boundaries and kind of given the the top three or four things to always remember, right, that that's they're the they're the client and we need not to become the client. So basically, and same with the coaching practice, right, we do not come to a session with our agenda. It's about the client's agenda, right? About being friendly, but not being friends, so to speak. Mm-hmm. About understanding where I begin and the patient, you know, where, where my um, ability to know things ends and the patient's or the client's begins. And then those clear limits and understanding of, of all of us as um, of helping providers. So there really is that fine line. And when I think about how that must be difficult for providers who especially are in smaller communities or who have been with a patient and family for long-term care, I think they do become friends. And I think mm-hmm. that can be very difficult. And they do become like family. And it's, I think that takes a daily initiative to be in a place of understanding what I take home and what I leave and how do I do that without tearing a piece of my soul out in the meantime. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's such an interesting subject. Um, and, and hard, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I personally believe that, and perhaps more than other people that it is okay to have a certain sort of emotional human connection with clients and patients. Um, and yet you, you, you describe it so well that it, can't it has to always be about them um and it can't Mm -hmm. that's the line that can't be blurred um but i i think it's it's very we are we are also human right the professionals are also human and so 
for sure there are moments that do tear out a, a piece of our soul and that we do take home. Um, and I think that that is because we are human. And if we that didn't happen to a certain degree, I would almost worry a little bit. Right, because then are we so inhumane, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so I think about Brené Brown's, I don't know if you've seen her TED Talk on vulnerability. Yes. You know, in that healing, so like true healing really allows us all to to be in that place of that our own individual vulnerability. And you know, she talks about it being really a birthplace of, you know, the innovation and creativity and change. And as I think about healthcare systems being in this place of continued change right now, right between value based care and population health and new payment models, right? Those are the the initiatives like kind of the triple aim, so to speak, from the, you know, from the Institute of Health, I believe, and, and thinking about how do we as individual, individuals stay in touch with our own vulnerability and as a unison, it's almost like a vibration, right? So if we're all in that place creating, I think that change will be that much easier. I think it's a very difficult place for us to get there as a whole. I think we have work. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly do. I wonder too, um, you know, is that is that something that comes a little bit part, partly with experience? I mean, I, I feel for, you know, younger, new clinicians, because, you know, we're talking about when you're talking about emotional intelligence, you're talking about self-awareness, you're talking about being able to be in touch with your vulnerability without it kind of spilling out and impacting on your ability to do your work. Those are difficult things. Um, And particularly, I think, as you're just coming into the field and just overwhelmed with everything, everything about it, um, it's got to be more challenging, I would think. I would think, and I'm pretty sure that's a very factual statement in thinking about <laughs> watching watching residents come from like med school and, and, and listening to, you know, faculty who's been out of med school and residency for, you know, 20 years. And again, I go back to that piece of that technology. So, you know, back in the day when, faculty stayed in, you know, they're called house staff. They, they lived in the hospital setting and they were pretty much there as needed. And to track you down, you, they physically had to find you, right? Move to today's place where we, you know, the residents have, the residents and fellows have not only pagers, but they have cell phones on them 24-7. So for them to be able to not only be in the house and be tracked down, but then be out of the house, so to speak, and be tracked down 24-7, when do they get the time to really be in that vulnerable place to really process and do some Mm -hmm. of that writing, right, some of that journaling that can maybe pull them out of that and help them process what happened during the day? I mean, I think that's where the big difference is with current, you know, med students and residents coming into medicine compared to 20 years ago. And I think and even if they have that high level of emotional intelligence, I think it's being tapped all the time at a more rapid rate. So, again, I go back to that piece of that self-care, teaching this generation, right, these millennials now in this time how to take care of themselves and how to speak their truth about what they need, but then also 
you know, be cautious about the generation that's saying, you know, this is what you do. You knew going into medicine that you were going to be asked to work this many hours and that the work was difficult. So finding also, Maya, that fine line of the expectation of the work, you know, is it realistic or not? In our our expectations as a new person coming into medicine, realistic about the, what the job really is and what the job requires. Yeah, is your impression is your impression that um, and maybe you know more about this sort of the the institutions that are um, teaching and training clinicians. Are they including more um, sort of training or classes related to, you know, this whole discussion of humanity and healthcare and self-awareness and um, EQ? Is that even part of training at all? It's certainly becoming more a part of training. It's certainly being more talked about. And so the piece about resilience Mm -hmm. is certainly being intertwined. And how do I not only have the tools and resources um, to work on my own resilience, but what is resilience? Like, what does that even look like? And I think that is certainly being spoken about more. And I think we'll continue to see more of that as we move forward. I'm happy to hear that. Um, and, you know, the, the little bit of experience I have here seems to be that those, those things are offered, but they tend to be electives. So um, yeah. it's a choice. And, and usually the people who choose to take them are the ones who already are inclined to think that way. Um, and the ones <laughs> who perhaps could, you know, I mean, it's, it's reality, right? And the ones who could perhaps benefit well, a little bit more well. are not going to opt for it. Right, and you tend to gravitate to what you're comfortable with. So a lot of this woo-woo, right, this woo-woo out there, touchy-feely, right, it's all kind of seen as the the thing to do maybe by many rather than the thing to do because evidence is really starting to suggest that these can be very helpful to not only to you as a practitioner and a provider but to your patients as well and then the healing process. Right. So if I as a patient am feeling more listened to and more trusted and have a deeper connection and I'm being um, um, looked in the eye when being spoken to, I then have, you know, a deeper ability to be calm and deal with my own stress and to help my own healing process kick in. Very concretely, I mean, someone who's feeling right. like that is going to comply with treatment, is going to, as you said, you know, take their medication, um, just physiologically, the lower stress is going to have an impact. I mean, it has a very um, genuine, concrete result uh, when that sort of trusting relationship can exist. You know, we were talking about those people gravitating towards what they're already a little bit inclined uh, to value. It's interesting, too, because I think, you know, if we talk about different fields of medicine, you know, some would say, well, all of that kind of uh, woohoo stuff, as you said, um, <laughs> matters for certain kinds of doctors. But, you know, I'm a, I don't know, a neurosurgeon and I just need to be able to do the technical work and that's what matters. And to some degree, that's true. I mean, if I need that service, I kind of want a surgeon who is really good at the technical piece. But it doesn't mean that the rest of it is not important, right? You know, it's interesting. When I had my hip replaced four years ago, actually this week as well, November must be a busy health care week for our family. (laughs) But anyway, 
um, I was in the um, uh, in the procedure room, right? They're getting me ready. They're taking my blood pressure, and I had on my pink clown nose, and I was listening to music as my mother is trying to read me the local news, and I don't watch the news. And so she's trying to read me the news, and I'm trying to say, you know, Mom, I really don't want to hear the news. And they take my blood pressure, and the nurse says, are you nervous at all? I'm like, no, I'm really not. I said, I've, you know, I've processed this. I've been doing my humor therapy. You know, I have my clown nose. I'm in this place. And so uh, at the door shows a set of, you know, I see green scrubs legs, right, green scrub covered legs. And I look up, and it's my surgeon with a red clown nose on. And what, was, and what was most interesting about that is when you were talking about wanting your surgeon to be technically right, technically high-performing, he was very much known as the person who was very direct and very good at what he does, and there's no fooling around. And so not only did he take aback his staff in that moment, but he met me where I was as a patient, trying to stay in my zone and stay focused and really be thinking of the positive in terms of my own healing and my control over that healing. And it was just absolutely amazing for me to see that in that moment and be wheeled into that OR with that just another addition of trust, feeling that I now not only have faith in his technical skill, but I have faith in that he understands what I need as a patient emotionally. And that he cared about you. Like, what a beautiful example. Yeah, it was it was really quite impressive. Um, so, and that and that makes me think too. You know, we've spoken about sort of how institutions can try, and you know, whether they're training institutions or actual health centers can try to sort of shift this culture as patients or families, because I mean, we can sort of wait for that to happen. <laughs> but but mm-hmm. in the here and now, let's say, you know, we've got some listeners out there who are um, about to embark on some sort of a healthcare experience or treatment um, procedure. What can we as patients or families do to try to bring back a little bit of this humanity in our healthcare experience? Is there anything that we can do ourselves? Oh, I believe so. Absolutely. And I think it's having those conversations, right? So, one is being informed as a patient, right, as we talk about the technical side. The other piece is being informed about those more emotional pieces, you know, whether it's asking for that shared decision-making process if that's not being offered. Using the resources and knowing that at every healthcare organization there is a patient advocate there and, and case management and seeking out those resources. Um, and if you hear the first no, to, to ask again, um, because there are varied resources available to people. Um, to be um, courageous enough when your clinical provider walks into a room and you see that they haven't washed their hands to say, excuse me, I noticed that you didn't wash your hands, and we've been advised that that's good practice for everybody. Um, and then also thinking about your own emotional first aid and safety, right? And and if you if you feel that you're being, uh, if you're not being listened to by a provider, to go to another provider that you trust and have that conversation so that that can be facilitated. Um, because as we know, if emotions are running high, we're ne- not necessarily going to step in, where as a family member we may need to, like in the Josie King story, right, where we want to make sure that people are heard, but they also have the courage as the patient or the family member to speak up and, and really speak their truth in that moment. 
which is really hard, um, you know, and use the word courage and it does take some courage because there's, let's face it, there's a, there's a power dynamic there. And, um, you know, there's some people who have a bit more comfort finding that courage to speak up. And there are others who don't even realize that they have the right to do that. And, and these professionals have sometimes quite literally your life in their hands, um, it can be quite scary and intimidating and people just don't, don't realize that they can speak up and perhaps don't know how. Right. Absolutely. And you know, at the, at the core of patient care, we said earlier is, is the patient is me. So me as a patient, it's my body. And so if we think about that going in, and we think about shared decision-making that, yes, we certainly want to hear from those experts who have spent decades training, right? Um, yet that shared decision-making process really allows us to hear their voice from the provider's sake, right, from that physician side of, of the best treatment that they think from what they know. But then what do I need as a patient? How do I want to spend my recovery days if I have a terminal disease, how do I, as a patient, want to spend those moments? And those are choices that can guide, you know, the quality of life for the patient. And so anytime we can encourage them to speak up and find that inner voice and give them avenues for the inner voice, which really are the patient advocates, I think, in many of the situations, um, I think the happier and healthier the system will be. So it really answers your question, Maya, about the how. Like, how do we get people to that state? I mean, I think it's really just voices like ours saying, use your resources. Don't be afraid to. And even if you are afraid, right, still step on that courage horse um, and ask those big questions. And that's a really good point. I mean, it's okay to be scared about how the professional is going to react, but you can still you can still speak up. Um, and, you know, and I think sometimes it helps to think about, you know, what's the worst that can happen, right? You, you speak well, up for right. yourself. In today's, yeah, I mean, in today's day with the whole disruptive behavior piece uh, that's taking place in healthcare systems across the United States and, and likely elsewhere is, you know, organizations are making true steps to be sure that patients are being listened to and if they feel they aren't and if they feel they're getting um, – maybe a rude answer back or not a full answer that they have those avenues to go to. And as far as I'm aware that those steps are then taken very seriously. I agree with you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent that those, uh, you know, that, that is something that I feel so optimistic about is these um, sort of policies and procedures and support systems related to supporting clients ability to, to speak up um, and to be mm-hmm. treated well. Uh, I see that coming everywhere um, and it's quite, quite effective. And then, so, okay. So, so we've given some nice little ideas to patients. And then if you were sort of leave to leave some last words for clinicians in terms of, you know, what they can concretely do tomorrow's Monday. Let's say there's some clinicians who are listening in terms of a last piece of what could they concretely do when they go into that room with their first patient tomorrow to perhaps shift how that experience goes? So I think it starts before they walk into that room. And I think mm. it even starts before they walk into that place of business for the day, right? Their world of work, that their mindset is such 
that they're mindful, right? Mindful of what took place that morning, that they've used some sort of um, a method, whichever it is for them, whether it's journaling or exercising or deep breathing, something to clear their mind to put them in the place of the agenda of the patient. So when they walk through that main door of their medical center or private practice or whatever the case may be, and they walk down the hall into that patient's room, they are there fully, intentionally, and wholly as a provider and a human in conversation with another human so that they can, again, like we talked earlier about listening intently. And if they feel that they're not, to take a step back and a breath and check themselves and then restart the conversation. Great words of advice, and it's all about sort of being both self-aware and fully present, which are things that we can all do as long as we are. We take the moment, as you say, even if we need to sort of step back before going in um, to do that and sort of get in touch with ourselves. Great, great words of advice. Duena, unfortunately, we're slowly running out of time. And I'm wondering if uh, what's coming up next for you? Are there any interesting projects uh, on the horizon for you? So we have a big project on the horizon. Um, as um, listeners may know by now, I live in Vermont, and we have just um, we're working on a what I'm calling a retreat center for now. It's called Dow Acres. DAO Acres. It will be a place of community where we will bring together groups, and some of them will absolutely be um, healthcare groups, in thinking about these types of topics around the humanity, about connection, about getting back to um, our inner core of who we are because we may have lost ourselves along the way or not really lost ourselves, but maybe put ourselves to the side along the way. Um, so that will be coming more information in the spring of 2016 and what those retreats will look like and what we'll be using that um, property for. And they can, um, readers can always check in, listeners can always check in with me, uh, a dose of Duena. Uh, they can zip me an email at vt for Vermont, peacegirl.com. And there'll be more to come in the, in the next year. You know? What an exciting project that is, and what a beautiful way of kind of getting away from the workplace setting to sort of get back in touch with these ideas of mindfulness and, and presence and being a bit more self-aware. I'm excited myself to hear more about that project of yours. And Duena, I just want to take this last minute to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join me this morning to talk about what I think is such an important um, and very complex, I mean, I think we could probably talk for days about this, but I'm really, really grateful that so. we at least started this conversation, and I'm sure listeners are going to be letting this marinate over uh, the coming days and weeks. So thank you. Thank you, Maya. This has been great. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. You have a wonderful rest of the day, and uh, be sure to send me in the mail some of that peanut butter fudge one day. <laughs> okay, I will do that. <laughs> you take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, take care, Maya. Bye-bye. That was Duena Covey. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I do love peanut butter fudge. <laughs> Next week, same time, same place, we are going to be talking about the impact that we have on our own experience of work. Join me as I speak with retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander Chip Lutz on Attitude at Work. Until then, for my friends and colleagues who work in the healthcare system, 
Be kind to yourselves as you bear witness to the lives of others. And how about some very last words on healthcare from W.C. Fields, who said, After two days in the hospital, I took a turn for the nurse. This is Maya, and I am out. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires goal for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.